there's always a poorest of the poor. There are poor people in the crowd, but one is poorer than any of the others. And she suggested, you know, that this is, was part of Mother Teresa's teaching. So I remember we had a discussion about this with other volunteers, and I was on the wrong side of that discussion. <laughs> and I was arguing, come on, Anthony, they're all poor, they're all coming off the streets. How could you tell one is more yeah, poor yeah. than another? And then uh, the discussion kind of subsided, uh -huh. and then some months went on, and Mother Teresa came to New York uh -huh. for the, my first time in meeting her. And I remember Anthony then brought this up again. He said, you know, Mother always comes the second or third day to the soup kitchen, mm -hmm. which was her practice, too. To, wherever she went in the world, she always went to visit her poor people, mm -hmm. always. And so this is what happened. Mother Teresa came in the next day after her arrival to the soup kitchen. I remember I was in the kitchen, at the kitchen sink, washing some pots. Mm -hmm. But I had this on my mind also. Of course, mm -hmm. you're seeing Mother Teresa for the first time in those days. Mm -hmm. And so I wa watched her now walk into a soup kitchen crowd currently in progress. Mm -hmm. There were about 60 men at kitchen tables. And most of these men had seen her before. So they were greeting her as she walked through the middle of the room, some reaching out their hand to you know, to say hello, and she, you know, how are you, mother? And, and she was a couple of words here or there, and she made her way through the middle of that between these picnic tables of 60 men. Before she got to the end, where there was a hallway, she took two steps to the left and reached down, kind of bent down to a man in the middle of that who had her back to, you know, mm -hmm. some looking at her, and she reached down, put her hand on his arm, and whispered something into his ear. And then turned around and started talking to the soup kitchen. So I, of course, immediately, I, you know, my, I wanted to see who was this man. <laughs> because she had made a definite, kind of small, right. but definite gesture yeah. to that man. And, and then I looked. And I saw, as, as the soup kitchen went on, this was the only old man in that soup kitchen, maybe about 70 years yeah. old. The rest of these men in the South Bronx in that time, you know, were people involved with drugs, criminal type, type things. Yeah. It was a young crowd, 20s, 30s, maybe some in their 40s. And this was an old man. Mm -hmm. and, and I thought to myself, you know, Mother Teresa often said, you know, the greatest poverty is loneliness. And I think she had that, though, that kind of eye for, an eye of love, mm -hmm. to see in the face of an old man sitting in a mm -hmm. soup kitchen at 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning, mm -hmm. alone. Mm -hmm. And that caught her eye. And then yeah. she made that, that gesture. Right. So it was moments like that with Mother Teresa that, you know, infected me more than anything. Mm -hmm. Not so much dramatic... Uh, experiences but did she ever tell you anything about the priesthood or you know like be a good priest or what that means or? well I remember one time in Rome being because I studied in Rome after being ordained and doing some doing graduate work and there were about 10 priests we were all friends and we asked because we knew the missionaries of charity well and it was arranged, and we had a we, we sat down with Mother Teresa in the chapel, 
the ten of us, just on the floor with Mother Teresa. And I remember in that talk that she said, I think the biggest problem in the priesthood may be that too many priests stay up watching TV at night too late and they don't pray in the morning. And by not praying in the morning, that affects their spiritual life. And that affects their life as, as priests. If you don't have serious prayer, you don't have serious apostolate you know, fervor. And that, that definitely struck, struck me. Yeah. I, I wonder how she would know that. I that mean, she probably, she knew, she knew, <laughs> you know, she knew human nature, I think. And, you know, she probably saw many priests coming to masses, you know, rushing in the door. And, and, mm. yeah. and I was just talking to uh, Father Brett Brannon, who's done, he was a vice rector at Mount St. Mary's and things. And, and he's very strong on the holy hour. And he said he used to tell seminarians, you know, some people, I think quoting from Fulton Sheen, like some are roosters and some are mm. night owls, you know. Mm. But the important thing is you get your prayer in. But he said now he just tells them, be a rooster, because if you put it off, you're going to be exhausted. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that. I, yeah. I, have, I have one good friend from Mount St. Mary's, and not uh, one, I mean, a number of these men that I, that I had taught. One, one of the good friends I have from years back, you may know him, uh, Father Carl Beekman. Oh, yes. Yeah. So Father Carl Beekman, uh, I remember my first time talking to him in our uh, initial spiritual direction. And I can say this, you know, it's because it's kind of funny, but he always kids me about this, that in our first minutes even of this meeting, I said to him, um, do you use a snooze alarm? in the morning in your alarm clock. Mm -hmm. And uh, apparently, I don't remember this so well, but I must have been asking that at times. <laughs> because I, and then I, I would say to the seminarians, you, know, you need to set that, that, that time in the morning early, and then don't hit the snooze alarm. That's your first <laughs> act of will in the morning. You're setting your day in the morning by an act of indulgence. <laughs> going back to sleep rather than getting up going to the chapel where our Lord is waiting for you <laughs> yeah. but no, I, I, I entirely agree with that that yeah. you know praying in the morning yeah. and that you know I see it in New York where I'm a priest at St. Patrick's that I admire a lot these people that they're getting up at five in the morning, you know, quarter to five, four thirty, mm -hmm. getting on trains, and they're there for a seven o'clock mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral, mm -hmm. and you know that kind of. Uh, sometimes priests need to think that the lay people are living rigorous <laughs> lives. Here. Right. They're getting up in the middle of the night, you know, with with young children, and was that famous story about? Uh, he was, a, he was a rector of the Mount at the time, Harry, Father Harry Flynn at the time. Now he's mm. bishop, retired. But he, there was one guy who couldn't get up for prayer, and he took him in his office and looked over at Highway 15 in front of the seminary. And said, those, those people are going to work every morning, you know, like six or seven, and you can't get to the chapel. You know? and, uh, well, I think there's a point to that. <laughs> so. so to go back to Mother mm -hmm. Teresa's comment, I think she probably had it right there. Yeah. Too much. If you step too late, you know you don't pray in the morning. I had a priest friend tell me his his, his spiritual director used to tell him nothing good happens after ten o'clock at night. <laughs> well, there's truth to that. 
but there's, uh, a, there's a reading in the bravery where it might be St. Romwell or somebody, one of the uh, hermit monks, talks about the great things that happen in the, in the, in the late depths of night. Mm -hmm. I think I, said, I was thinking to myself, well, that may be for you, but <laughs> it's hard to pray that, you know, late at night like that. Right, yeah. Well, that brings up another question. In the spiritual life, like you want to make changes, you want to be converted, and yet maybe a person's really struggling with that attachment or whatever. How do you break that? Well, it depends on what the attachment is. Some, some attachments are, you know, they can be, you know, terrible attachments of mortal sin. They can be small things. And, uh, you know, perhaps in prayer we, you know, we, need to, we need to hear our Lord saying, can, can, can you do that for me? And maybe to have a motivation. Mm -hmm. Can you do that for me and for a soul? Right. You know, to offer some sacrificial renunciation for another soul but um, it depends on what it is sometimes people have uh, they don't treat as so important something so it's hard to give it up and if it's serious then it's, it's not small yeah. but there are small things that are hard to, to break at times uh, you know, human nature is going to get attached you know, even with right. people mm -hmm. and there is the, you know, the ongoing difficulty of allowing our life to be, to be uh, stripped down over time. I mean, I love the, the phrase of Mother Teresa. It's a serious statement. You know, give whatever he takes, take whatever he gives, mm -hmm. with a big smile. Mm -hmm. And the big smile may sound, well, that's not such a serious... No, it's a serious statement. Give whatever he takes, take what he gives. And... I mean, human life, if there are, there are, there's always going to be some small attachments that, that go on in life. Right. And, and sometimes, sometimes I wonder, you hear people's stories, you know, maybe they give up drinking or something and they hit, you know, rock bottom. And I'll think, well, I mean, do we have to crater our lives, you know, to make a change, you know? Mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. and it just seems like some things can hold us so strongly. And, uh, but, yeah, maybe it's a really yeah question. Bring it to prayer and asking God for help. I mean, also I think I think a, a big part of spiritual life, you know, whether we're struggling with small or great things, is you know, is mental austerity. You know, we talk about these things as like even bodily addictions and these things that are taking captive lives, but the effort to be mentally austere, meaning we turn our mind quickly in the, to the right if the, this other thing is on the left. And mm -hmm. you know, to be strong-minded is the first step, really, to, with grace, but right. is the step of, of walking away from something. Because right. the problem of all of these, you know, if there are addictions, and, and not so much addictions as vices, some of those things have to do with being too much attentive uh, too much absorbed in something, and sometimes I mean, the, the demonic is there too, and absorbed with the sense of, you know, being overcome by something too strong to uh, resist. And but all of that is, is uh, could be helped perhaps by, you know, mentally turning away. And it's 
It's one, I'm not, I don't know much at all about psychology, but the, the one, there's one area of psychology that I think maybe they haven't, they haven't got it, they got it right. And that's called cognitive, uh, I think it's called cognitive psychology or something. Or cognitive therapy. Maybe, yeah, which something. is the idea of controlling your, your, your mind. Mm -hmm. You know, trying to turn your mind away from things that yeah. are of the negative and dark. Right, and right. So mental austerity is, is part of that too, I think. Yeah, you know, turning away, le leaving it alone, letting it go, and right. Now you're you're at St. Patrick's Cathedral, right across from, right the Rockefeller Square. You got all this busyness and intensity and New York Minute stuff, and, mm. <laughs> and yet you're writing about contemplation. You say you can find that in a really busy, active priest life in a busy city. Well, I have to get up early. <laughs> Before the city starts moving. I also, I, I also use earplugs. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, you're right. But I, 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 I do, um, I value the need for some solitary time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when I, when I go on retreats, I don't go on for a retreat for five days. I'll, I'll go at least two weeks, mm. or two and a half, three weeks, use vacation time, too. Mm -hmm. And I go to a monastery, just be alone, and so that doesn't make a person, uh, you know, that doesn't necessarily determine a spiritual life. But mm -hmm. I think that has taught me the great need. Also, you have to have some serious, quiet solitude and and silence. Mm. So I try to have that every day, if I can. Certainly in the morning, that's always my my long time practice. Mm -hmm. And I try to have it in the PM time also, mm. and sometime there. And what about, uh, like, you know, in the culture, it just seems like everything, in the culture and the church, you know, there's just tension. And maybe it's the way stuff is reported and, and all the sound bites and just like the way we, like the way institutions handle media, you know, everybody's making speeches, always making statements, and then that's kicked around, debated in the Catholic blogosphere. There's great vitriol and everything. Do you do you avoid that stuff, or how do you find peace? And it just seems like our age is one of great anxiety and tension. Well, I, I mean, I I face that struggle too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm 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 part of the church too, and I and I do read you know certain things, and um, I'm following what's going on and. And I, I, I do find that I talked to a priest not too long ago, the past week, you know, this can get heavy on one's spirit. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I don't think it can, you can, as a priest, you can't totally ignore everything. Right, right. And I do worry how it affects people. And, um, and, and it's, it's part of what I am aware of with, with, uh, with people. But... Mm -hmm. I think there can be too much, you know, looking at, you know, negative things, you know, it's like anything of reading. If we read, if we read junk or things that are not written well, you know, that kind of takes you down. Mm -hmm. But to read a few penetrating things, mm -hmm. read, read people who have good reputation mm -hmm. on, I don't think you can ignore those things if you're living in the world. Right. Let me switch gears a little bit to like the moral theology perspective. It, it, I feel like sometimes we're 
like the battles from the 60s and 70s are coming back upon us. <laughs> it seems like so much was settled in a Veritatis Splendor, The Splendor of Truth by John Paul II, early 90s. And sometimes I read, sometimes even what churchmen are saying, that I'm saying this is like contradicting. Mm. We've been through this already. And mm -hmm. it seems like we're going back to it. Do you see some principles that you feel like people are missing that uh, they're not getting? Or well, I think one of the one of these, if we want to try to hit the target, you know, on the head on that one, this question that was settled by Veritatis Splendor <coughs> to speak in the church definitively of the reality of intrinsic evils. And intrinsic evils means certain kinds of behavior, certain choices of human action, including something like adultery, or that there are certain actions that can never be chosen except an evil action is taking place. Mm -hmm. And that if a person is conscious of that, you're going to have serious sin. And, mm -hmm. and if it's a, uh, of that magnitude. And this, what's happening now is the, the danger of what's happening is we can be speaking of things that were formally understood to be never permissible to choose, allowing now for some circumstances of exception. Well, that's a radical contradiction to what the church has taught in, in its history and what was a serious tension in the church prior to to uh, Veritatis Splendor and was part of the aberrant moral theology of that period. And now you're right. We're, we're getting back to a, a time where there's now ambiguity, vagueness about this. Mm -hmm. There are some bad examples of even high-level comments on this. And my, my question, though, if there is a uh, maybe some good side to it, I don't know the answer to this, but after teaching in the seminary for a number of years, I tend to think the younger seminarians are not going to be, uh, they're not going to buy into easily the uh, thought that, well, the moral theology now has changed and, right. and the, these things now are permissible under certain circumstances. Yeah. And that's my hope. Right. And I'm not sure what seminary teachers are proposing. The, when we had the bad period in moral theology, you had a lot of seminary teachers in the mm -hmm. 70s and 80s teaching proportionalism or other, mm -hmm. where intrinsic evils were allowed you know, per permission. Mm -hmm. And that was slammed down by Veritatis Splendor. Mm -hmm. But I would think now seminary teachers are not going back to that teaching, except perhaps in certain orders or some circumstances, mm -hmm. but I don't know. It could be in Europe this is taking place, and right. I don't know. Right. What about uh, some basic principles of the spiritual life um, that, like we've spoken about detachment. Um, how does that detachment factor into the spiritual life? Why is that important? Like John of the Cross spoke a lot about that, Teresa of Avila. Well, I think what, you know, when John of the Cross was speaking about detachment, he's not saying, <clears throat> that we are, you know, that the primary effort of spiritual life is to be ascetical, to be mortifying ourselves and everything, mm -hmm. uh, to be isolated, if we meant by that attachment. But I think it has to do with, with 
John of the Cross's understanding of the importance of the human will. And the human will, I mean, John of the Cross's definition of sanctity is conformity of the human will with the will of God. And many saints will speak in a similar way. And that is what a saint is. They really become one with the will of God. The problem of the will is that the will has a kind of first operation of being caught in desire. The will in inclination, the will in desire. Mm -hmm. And that in itself can weigh down the will, you know, and kind of drift it away, pull it away from desire for the will of God. Because mm -hmm. part of holiness is also to desire the desires of God. So detachment, in, I think, in John of the Cross's perspective is we have to be careful that we're not allowing ourselves to indulge in many choices and many desires that are in conflict with, with the will of God. Mm. So it's not, it, I, think, I don't think detachment is something of a, a metaphor for our kind of monastic life mm -hmm. as much as a care not to get caught up indulgently in choices mm -hmm. without a thought, is this really what God wants? Mm -hmm. And some of it he does want, perhaps. If you're living mm -hmm. a family life, he wants you, you have to take your children for things also mm -hmm. of fun and, mm -hmm. you know, some simple pleasures and... A Yankees game. Yeah, and an and ice cream cone <laughs> and a Yankees game. And I'm not sure a Yankees game, that costs too much, I say. <laughs> Only the rich people go to Yankee games now. But, you know, there are, there are, there are good things in life, you know, that are healthy. Uh -huh. but, uh, but detachment is something like you know, people today sometimes get so caught up with sports, we were just speaking, that right. that becomes more important than uh, Sunday Mass or, right, right. or, you know, something of prayer with the family. And we spoke about meditation before contemplation how would like these great spiritual writers describe what is contemplation well I mean that's a more serious you know uh, question and, and and I think it, it's, it might be the case that people experience this reality of the grace of contemplation in different ways it's one thing if you're living in a, a Carmelite monastery and another thing if you're living in the world but I think what the, what the reality of, of contemplative prayer is, it depends on one, one, one reality, that the human will is giving itself sufficiently to some extent, to some advanced extent, to the will of God, mm. that that begins to affect then one's prayer. Mm. So that contemplative prayer is, is something of an experience, depending on the person, but something of an experience of the human will in serious longing for, for God. Mm. And not necessarily emotionally at all, but a serious longing to be all for God, mm. to belong to God. Mm. Now that can have a lot of variations. Mm -hmm. You know, a person who has much quiet and, uh, and perhaps, you know, much self-giving before God, and let's say in a monastery or a cloister, will have a different experience of that. Mm -hmm. But every saint, every holy person is meant to give themselves fully before God. So I think mm -hmm. a person even in an active life mm -hmm. might experience very serious times of silence before God, wanting nothing but Him. Mm -hmm. That's probably, that person is probably 
experiencing something of contemplative prayer then. Mm-hmm. And it's not a, sometimes we hear, sometimes, oh, I, I, I've heard people say, oh, I practice, I practice contemplative prayer, or I practice a method of contemplative prayer. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very, uh, that's a bad misconception of contemplative prayer. Mm-hmm. You know, the reality of contemplative prayer, if we're given that grace, it comes because we're giving ourselves fully to God and we want nothing but Him. If that can be cultivated in prayer and carried out in life, mm-hmm. we can expect God's going to grace the life. Mm-hmm. The experiences of it may, may differ. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jacques Maritain talked about this. Uh, you know, the difference between a person in an active life and a person in a, in a monastery will have a very a different experience of contemplative life or contemplative mm-hmm. prayer. But the, the, the source of it will be the same in one, in one sense, the giving of oneself, wanting only God. Mm. So. And then just a recap on the meditation. You, know, you suggested like reading a chapter of the scripture and thinking about it and listening and being led by God in prayer. And then, you didn't use the word resolution, but you used uh, desire, right? To cultivate that desire for God. And yeah, to come, to come out of, because I think when, when they use the, 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 the so-called Ignatian or meditation methods, and when they speak of a resolution, I think they're often saying, you know, what does the gospel now teach you about a virtue? Now, so what resolution about some virtue or practice or something personal in my life do I want to resolve on, you know? And I think there's something deeper that can be taken out of prayer, mm. which is this, in a sense, a greater, deeper desire that, you know, it's a resolution, but to be, res- I resolutely want to give myself all to you. All these other things, are, you know, fall under that banner. Mm. You know, if we want to really give ourselves all to God, then we also want to stop, let's say, judging that person. Mm-hmm or being critical with our tongue and that, or you know, being uh, too indulgently impatient, or whatever these even small things are. But I, I, I like the, the comment of that uh, Benedictine, John Chapman, to come out of prayer with this great, I want. I want you, I want your will, I want to give this day you know, for you, I want souls, mm. you know, I want to live this life for souls. And I think that's hugely important too in any spiritual life, contemplative life, that this is not for us, but to be offering our life for, for others, for souls. Mm-hmm. And the more, that, that's a very good sign in a life. The more we are, we're taking, as the gospel is telling us that, to get taken out of ourself and to live for others. You know, if you're in a, a cloistered convent, you're doing this in the privacy of prayer and sacrifice. If you're living in the world, you're accessible, available to being used in the workday. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much, Father Haggerty, for speaking with us. And thank uh, you, Father Mark. Yeah, thank pleasure. you. Pleasure.